Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Between 2012 and 2014, American producer and songwriter Che Pope went from a partner to the head of A&R to the chief operating officer of Kanye West's Good Music label collective and became one of the most influential figures in hip-hop. He's penned and produced hits for Aesop Rocky and The Weeknd, but his work dates back to the early 90s with his deep involvement in the production of Lauryn Hill's iconic The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. In this lecture from the 2015 Red Bull Music Academy in Paris, Che talks about what it means to work intimately with Kanye West, the labor of love that was working with Lauryn Hill, and the rewards and challenges of musical collaboration. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Would you please welcome Mr. Shea Pope. Hello, everybody. You've spent some time here, in this city, haven't you? Spent a lot of time here. Great city. What were you doing here? The Yeezus album, Kanye's album, um, he decided to make pretty much entirely here. So that's that's we spent about six months here working on that album. And uh, a lot has been said, sort of documented on that process. But I would imagine you have an interesting perspective on it as well, since you're one of the co-executive yeah. producers of that project and label president and whatnot. Yeah. I think that album was different than any of the other Kanye albums because he was in a place where... As you know, you guys saw the internet, you saw the rants. He was doing a lot of rants. It was a lot of, um, he was real feisty. Um, I think is the best way to describe it. He's very happy with the album he had done previously, which is Dark Twisted Fantasy and, and The Watch the Thrones. And as, as much as, as accomplished and as, as strong as Dark Twisted Fantasy was, he also felt like that was somewhat of an apology coming off the Taylor Swift stuff and all that. So he felt like he had to make the best possible album best orchestrations and a lot of that album was made in hawaii and traveling around the world watch the throne was basically made around the world traveling um with yeezus he was back to being kanye you know where he wanted angst and he's he's been in he's into fashion he's inspired by paris he every week we visited the louvre and we'd walk through the louvre he'd walk through paris at night by himself or, or, you know, no security, one or two of us, and we'd walk around and look at the architecture. And he was in a very feisty place. So it was a great place to, and it's challenging. You know, you're making an album, it's challenging when you're in the studios and you don't speak French and you're trying to navigate all of the ter terrain to make it. I mean, we were even taking the subway every day and different things of that nature, just really get acclimated to the, to the city and really like be a part of the city more than being a tourist. So it was great. It was just a really great experience. And I think the result of it is where you hear that the angst of the album, that energy of the album, the feistiness of the album, the rant of the album. They weren't really songs per se. They were audio rants. You know, it was a very aggressive album. It was his version of punk. And so, and that, and that, you know, that came from, you know, really being here and being inspired. So would you imagine that it would have sounded different in a different city or would it have sounded similar because of where he was in his life it would have definitely sounded different but the attitude would have been there this album was started off with daft punk 
So they kind of were the catalyst for the driver of starting off with the textures were that we started with. And I think that was the catalyst even for him, you know, even wanting to make the album here. You know, I think he had gotten some music from them and, and they'd gone in a little bit and that just really inspired him and that was the catalyst for everything. So I think wherever we had made it, it would have still had that attitude, but it, it wouldn't have had the textures that it had, you know, so to speak, from here. We, we should talk a lot more about that, but I want to do some sort of introduction of you as an individual and what you do. Can you sort of explain what your responsibilities are as, as a president of, of good music and how is that different? Perhaps because you've worn many hats through the music industry over the years, how is being president of this particular situation different from perhaps another situation? Well, the number one challenge is is good music is is a brand he created. Good is an acronym. It stands for getting out our dreams. You know, he's an artist. He's a creative. It was never really a monetary endeavor. You know, what I mean, it was really a way to help artists to be, you know, give them an opportunity. All artists, not even just music artists, photographers, directors, songwriters, creatives, um, you name it. And a lot of people have like Nabil, you know, there's a lot of different people who have already seen success coming through it. Hudson Mohawk, you know, people you don't even know of, Arca, have been all birthed through this thing. Big Sean, obviously, and, you know, and all the various people. But what my role is, it's different. It's, you know, I came in, I had already been a producer and executive for years, done this. I've known Kanye for a long time. We sat down. He said, hey, I need some help with, um, I've got this label, I think. I've done a really good job branding it, but I haven't done a good job really, you know, in the business of running a record label. So what I've been doing is really focusing on, we've been really focusing on building the label back to being the best, most, you know, it should be a label that's representative of Kanye West, of who he is as a person, who he is as an artist in terms of innovation and all that. And it should translate into the business that it is. You know, it should be, you know, I give hats off to like the XL Records and the Young Turks and the various labels, Bromance here in Paris and, you know, the different labels that really do their thing, Matador in the U.S. Um, there's some really forward thinking labels that guys that really understand this business and where it's at in 2016 and beyond versus sort of like the old way of doing business, if you will. You know, we all know it's a new world. It's a SoundCloud world. It's a YouTube world. It's a, you know, streaming world. You know, you're not constrained you know, constricted as you once were, you know, where to access the U.S. you had to be come through New York or L.A., you know, to access, you know, Europe, you had to come through London, you know what I mean? Now it's, it doesn't matter where you're at. You know, if you have the talent, if you, you have the skills, you know, I have, I have kids hit me from Russia, on, on, you know, on Twitter, who I get tracks from, you know. We have producers, Arcas from Venezuela, you know. It's literally a global business. And I think with the label is, that's, part of my role is is really bringing it to where it's supposed to be mm -hmm. in terms of not only creatively but business-wise as well you know there's a public persona that we're familiar with with kanye how does the professional behind the scenes persona differ does it differ well number one question i get from people a lot of people just in my travels i get is he nice you know what I mean? Um, he's actually, Is he nice? Yeah. He's extremely nice. He's extremely nice, warm, caring individual. I mean, he's he's a very complex individual. He's very well thought. He constantly, you know, he can constantly contradict himself. But the underlying goal is that he's just trying to make good things. You know, he's trying to uh, work with creatives. He's never a me, me person. I think there's a perception of he's this egomaniac and it's a me, me thing. When we work together, it's all about team. It's all about 
collaboration. It's a complete Motown sort of experience, if you will, because it's constant collaboration. And that's across the board in terms of what he's doing. If he's doing a live show, he has a team around him and they're brainstorming about various live show instances. If he's doing fashion, there's a whole team. It's a very creative environment, which I, I really appreciate that because it's just constant, you know, there's a lot of what I call disposable music going on. And that's no knock to anybody what anybody's doing. I just think that we put a little bit more thought into it. And, you know, I made last night, I may make an awesome track. And, you know, it might be the best track in the world. And yeah, I could have put it out on SoundCloud last night, but I'd like to sleep on it, wake up in the morning, listen to it, and think about how can I make this better. And I feel like that's what we, that's our process. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, you know, that we still care that we still try to just explore, you know, we, I mean, you've, you may, I don't know if you guys know this, but you may have heard this. There's often 10, 12, 15 versions of songs that we have. It's often months at a time that we may work on the same song. You may, you, uh, Bound, which was one of the records that I did on um, Yeezy that I did with him. I mean, there might've been 10 versions of that song before it was ever finalized. And, and it was finalized maybe in the last week of the album so and that goes on for every song so what does it mean to co-produce a song with kanye west and i and you may just made reference to you know many people credited on one individual song and there are songs where you are solely credited along with kanye so since that's a more unique situation actually maybe you can speak to the other later but what is it like when it's you and Kanye, you know, co-producing a song? Um, it's good. I mean, honestly, pri years before I worked with Kanye, I worked for Dr. Dre for a while. And prior to working with Dr. Dre, I was pretty much an individual that worked by myself on a record. You know, I may have, you know, different musicians I'd collaborate with here and there. But overall, I would go in a studio by myself, create a track, so on and so forth. When I started working with Dre, I, I would say I was introduced to more of the five people in a room it might be dre scott storage myself mike elizondo and then that's when i really i guess realized like how good other people were and you're in there with five other all-stars i felt like that was great preparation for any experience so moving into kanye's experience that is moving into the unknown um because as much as i thought i was prepared for it you can never be prepared for kanye um you can do your best and be ready but He's always going to surprise you. He's always going to be unpredictable. He's always going to disrupt. You know, Even when you think you finally figured it out, he's still going to disrupt that. So I think for the first two years, it was definitely sparring, like really learning and understanding each other and how to communicate with each other. We definitely had our moments like any creatives you do. Um, so as far as when it's just me and him doing a record, I still have those moments where I might have an idea that I've created myself and i'll you know i'll give it to him and he's really liked it or something and then he'll just touch it and then that's done those those moments are very few and far between <laughs> um usually th 20 he might have you know he's, he's we've we've you know hudson mohawk might have worked on it mike dean might have worked yeah. on it jeff basker might have worked on it no id might have worked on it noah goldstein might have worked on it so it's very seldom that there's only like me and him that do a record so um, you've said you prefer to be in the background to some degree. Completely. Why is that? You know, um, I came along in the era of like 
the Timberlands and the Pharrells and the Neptunes and these super producers. They were great. You know, you had Swiss Beats, you had Timberland, and they were such large personalities. Um, I've always been very low key. And it was it was really all about the music for me and the journey of the music more so than the celebrity. Even now, like I turn I tend to turn down press to do a lecture. Like I'd prefer to do a lecture and work and work with young people and talk to people and, and that versus doing just a an interview in a magazine or something of that nature. And it's and that's just been my personality, I think, from the from the door. Uh, where are you from originally? Um, Boston, Massachusetts, if anyone's familiar with Boston. Yes. Um, where? <laughs> Gangstar and, and, you know, Guru. and OG. Yeah, the almighty RSO. Um, you moved to Virginia? Yep, I went to college in Virginia, which was a, was a very unique time in Virginia at the time. Um, Jay-Z was down there hustling. Um, Diddy was throwing parties. Diddy went to Howard and he was coming down and throwing parties in Virginia and Atlanta. Teddy Riley had moved from New York. Teddy Riley, obviously a big music producer at the time, had set up shop in Virginia Beach. Um, Pharrell and Chad were in high school, you know, figuring their stuff out. Um, Timbaland and Missy were from there, but then they obviously they went up to Rochester with um, Devante from Jodeci. But what happened surprisingly. And this was by no means a plan or any, I had no idea, you know, I actually did music kind of for fun. It was just one of the things I did. I didn't go to school for music. I'm from Boston. Berkeley was right there. Um, I thought about going to Berkeley, but I wanted to get out of Boston. But Virginia at the time became this melting pot of all these people coming through. You had so many artists coming through. I met um, Naughty by Nature and Tribe, Tribe Called Quest was big as this time. I met all these guys. And so without knowing it, I had actually, you know, sort of moved into a melting pot of musicians and, and future, you know, Hall of Fame musicians and producers and executives from the Diddies to the Jay-Zs to the, and I'm meeting all these people just, you know, hanging out at, you know, at the basketball court. I'm meeting them at the club. I'm meeting them at a restaurant, you know, and you're interacting with these people. So uh, a friend of mine gave some music to Teddy Riley and um, he tracked me down. By that time, the time he, by the time he found me, I had more music, and so he literally left the room and comes back with a contract. Um, true story. The first thing he said to me: "This is not a good contract." <laughs> this is not. But but he, what I liked about it, though, he was very honest about it, and so um, I signed the contract. Naturally, I was a junior in college, so it was like a great opportunity because I don't even think at that point I even believed doing music as a career for my life was even possible. So um, spending time with the Teddy Rileys of the world, the KG from Naughty by Nature, the RZA from Wu-Tang, Diddy, that gave me, it was the belief and the confidence in myself that was possible. And I think that just, that alone, realizing, you know, you guys are here all in this room because you, you know, because it's it's what is possible. You know what I mean? It's, um, and it is possible. I'm, I'm living proof of it. You have, you know, one minute you have no idea, like, you know, you're trying to figure out, you're in college, like, well, damn, why am I going to this class? I really don't even like this class. I don't like this major, but I don't know what other major to do, so. You were a finance major. I was a finance major, yes. Wow. What a life that could have been. Jeez. <laughs> um, I think just the belief that instilled in me that this is possible. Then after that, you feel 
you put you feel powerful. You feel like Superman, you know, because you you know no matter what obstacles you face, whatever pitfalls, ups and ups and downs you face, whatever Lauren Hills you run into, you feel like it's like you know you feel like anything is possible. What do you think, craft wise, was the most important thing you learned from being around Teddy Riley? Oh, a song. I definitely was a beat guy. I mean, you know, like all night, just a four-bar loop. So Teddy was like, okay, that's great for like 30 seconds. Let's make a song. So Teddy was great because, you know, you're talking about a real producer and a real songwriter. So he definitely always instilled everything was about the song. So that was great. It was a great um, experience. And then you uh, came under the tutelage of another producer back up in New York. Yeah, I, it was funny because I don't know if I don't know who was tutoring who. I think we both were. <laughs> I think we both. He's he's talking about Wyclef, and um, I met Wyclef after he's just coming off the Fuji album and the success of the Fuji album, and so on and so forth. And I think we both at that time were both just fearless, like we just had no fear of whatever. We would just literally, okay, that kick doesn't go with that snare, and that bass is out of tune with that guitar, but fuck it, let's go. You know, and then you know, out of that became Destiny Child's No No No. Out of that became Ghetto Superstar. Out of that came you know his you know uh, Carnival album, and um, these these records that just we just literally made. He had this Upper East Side apartment. It was like it was a really nice apartment where we just threw a bunch of equipment in, and there was really nothing else in there, and we would just make tracks all day long. And it was just same thing. It was just a level of fearlessness. I think what I liked about Clef though is is that. Um, same thing that I spoke about earlier like when you get one an artist anything is possible yeah. you know it'd be like oh you got a you know some you know Middle Eastern tabla drum loops with you know with some Creole you know with some, you know so anything was possible was that the sort of t- takeaway from craft wise from being around him do you think or was it something else no definitely that and I still have that to this day like it's still I think, if anything, I think I left Teddy with a little bit, maybe a little too structured. Mm-hmm. So getting in with Clef after Teddy was a great experience because then it gave me the the wildness again, yeah. you know. And that, and I think that's followed me through my whole career. All right. So then after this number of, I don't know if it's years or or year, but for this period, working with Clef, then you are working with another individual involved with the Fugees. Yeah, I, uh, from Clef. Um, I met Lauren and it was a very organic experience where we just, we met, we began talking about music before we ever did any music and it was great. And I think we just had like-minded viewpoints on terms of creating music, what we felt, our relationship to music, similar backgrounds. Um, you know, she had very educated parents. Um, one of her parents was an educator. One of my parents is an educator, um, very similar journeys, if you will. So at the time, coming off the success of the Fugees as well, she was interested in producing. She really wasn't a producer, so it was like kind of like, well, if I partner, if we, if we work together, then you can help me. You know, I have the name, I have the success. You know, you're a beginning producer and you're learning and you, and you know, you have this experience from Teddy, you have this experience from Clef and, you know, let's, let's partner up. So we partnered up and we started working and the first song we did was a songwriter who you, at the time was signed to Arista Records named um, Martin, who's still a good friend to this day. Um, and we did the song, the remix actually, of the song called Best of Me. And that was the first song me and Lauren ever did together. Mm-hmm. And we did it in her attic. So then typically, how would it work then? 
you sit down? Are you working alone? Are you presenting ideas to Lauren? Do you sit no. in the room together and come up with something from scratch? Yeah, that one started literally just me and her sitting in in her attic. And that one, we, we, the first one we started with was a remix. So we had a song to kind of play with and flip. So um, it was literally me on an MPC um, and her right next to me. And we just literally pretty much did the whole record. And then we took it to the studio and finished it. But um, it was that. And then we did the next record we did was Aretha Franklin, Roses of Rose. Who I brought, um, there used to be a bass player, uh, a dreadlock, Vera Isaac from the Bronx, that I used to use a lot. He had the best sound and bass. So it was me, him, and Lauren. I brought him in on Roses of Rose. And so it was really organic, literally just sitting in her attic in her at the, at the time that was still her parents' house in Jersey. And we would just mess around and, you know, build the track and the song. And then next thing you know, we'd finish in the studio. So how was it when things started for Miseducation of Lauren Hill? Was it more or less the same? There were other people involved as well at that point. Yeah, well, that um, it started off, um, she did a record with Common, and she had me come to the studio with her when she was working on that, and I met um, James Poyser. James Poyser is one of the members of The Roots on, on The Fallon Show, if you guys ever watched The Fallon Show. I don't know if they get that over here button or not, but... Um, James Poyser, so, and we all struck up a friendship. And me and James were really close, and he was one of those guys, the super talented Philly guys. So she also knew this guy, Vader Nobles, from her neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So she wanted me and James at her disposal 24 hours, but we were also doing other things too. So me and James weren't available to her 24 hours. So that's why she brought in Vader, who had these two twins that he worked with. So it was almost like two teams. I like to say the A team and the B team. And no, you were no the, disrespect. you were the, uh, we were definitely the A team. So as a creative experience, how special was this? Well, the, the creating of the album was an amazing experience. It was about a year and a half out of my life. Like you feel like you gave blood like every day. We sat in a room when we started the record and it was me, her and James. And the first thing she said, she said, I like soul music. I like reggae music and I like Wu-Tang. Let's go. And literally one of the first records we made was doo -wop. I don't know how doo -wop came out of that equation, but that was one of the first records we made was doo mm -hmm. And it was just great from there on. It was just, same thing, it was a very liberating experience with her because I think she had those similar experiences with Wyclef and creating the Fuji album where there were no boundaries. And the only boundaries that she gave me with her album was, was those are her influences. Yeah. So as long as you include references to her in you know her her influences she was open to anything right, right. you know so it was a very amazing and you know really organic experience this album was my first real i guess i had some nibbles in terms of what this business can be with wyclef but nothing compared to what happened at the end of miseducation so there's records such as zion that were done zion and i used to love them i used to love him which is the song with Mary that I made in, Brook in my own Brooklyn brownstone. They weren't even made in the studio. So there were literally no one else that made those tracks. And I didn't even have publishing on them uh, when, you know, when the album came done. Did you um, speak to Lauren directly about any of this at any time after you learned that you were not given full credit for your work? Um, only one time. And even then, it was more of a, like, a sort of dismissal type, a dismissive type conversation where it was like, we'll figure it out. And then after that, she just checked out. And there was no more access to Lauren. There was no more, there was really no more Lauren at that point. There was managers and lawyers who stood in front and then even they, and then they began to change and disappear. Mm -hmm. 
And it was like, okay, who's working? Who's representing her? Who's working? You, what, what's going on with the label? And, and then after that, I just let it go. So as a, a young person, a creative person, at this point in your career, you've just contributed to this hugely successful creative triumph and the rug has been pulled out from under you. So how did you decide where, what to do next and where to go? The number one thing I would say, I, I went on to educate myself about this business. Um, I did a, became an executive at Warner Brother Records under the tutelage of this producer named David Kahn, who was the head of A&R at the time. David Kahn was responsible for producing everyone from Fishbone to Paul McCartney. So, I mean, really amazingly brilliant guy. I used to call him a nerd genius because his knowledge in the studios is as great as his knowledge about the business. Um, and then the other great thing is my office was in, at the time I still lived in New York, and my office was in Rockefeller Center. Directly across from my office was business affairs. So it couldn't be a better position to be in where literally every day I could go talk to the lawyers who were, you know, the masterminds of this business. So I learned everything there is to learn about a record contract, about publishing. So I stress to you guys, learn everything there is to learn about this business. So you produced some groups in Europe. You became an executive. You studied under the tutelage of a gentleman named Hans Zimmer. I did. Um, I just showed up on his doorstep. <laughs> that's, that's the other hip hop thing. You just don't, you just don't know. You don't care. You just like, Hey, who is, I, who is Hans Zimmer for, for somebody who may not be familiar with um, his work? Legendary German composer. He, at the time, what happened was I had actually, um, scored a film, this film called white boys, which is, was, um, it's really funny film. Um, Danny Hawk. Yep. Yep. Danny Hawk. Um, this director had just come off this movie Slam, which was a poetry movie um, that was really had, you know, on an independent level, was really popular. And he did this movie White Boys, which was, you know, it was a really funny movie. The kind of a this Danny Hawk was this one man comedian kind of a thing, one man show, if you will. And he they sort of made a movie about it. And so I scored this film, knowing absolutely nothing about scoring films, and it was fun. It was a great experience. So I was like, oh, you know. Let's go to, you know, this same thing, being hip hop, being not knowing any better. I just show up on Hans Zimmer's door one day, like, hey, I want to score films. He's like, who are you? <laughs> so after we, we got, you know, after I was able to talk him out of not having security remove me, you know, we spent time just talking and hanging out and we formed a bit of a bond and relationship. At the time, I didn't live in L.A. And then um, each time I went to L.A., I started hanging out with him more. Next thing you know, I ended up working with over there at the time it was called uh remote concur uh no media ventures at the time it's, his company's called remote control now and it, and he, same thing it's like a creative collective of composers and younger you know from beginning composers to very experienced composers and it was a really great environment for me because it really introduced me to to computer music what hans lacked as say maybe a john williams who was a full-on you know classically trained composer hans had composition experience but he also had um he was a huge fan of craft work and um so he had synth experience he was a really great synth programmer and all this stuff so he he was one of the first people to really embrace technology and computers with and, and doing movie scores so 
coming from the hip hop world, urban world, it was like ASRs, NPCs, SP 1200s, turntables. You know, even when we use keyboards, very seldom, you know, I mean, some people did sequence them with uh, MIDI, but a lot of times I would play and just sample myself and then, you know, chop what I played and things of that nature. So computers were somewhat of a daunting thing at that. And, and back then, you know, this is 2000, 2001, something like that. So all these guys, you go in these rooms, all these guys had, you know, racks of samplers, like there'd be 15 samplers and I'd be in there like, like, I mean, it was just re very intimidating atmosphere, you know, that, you know, um, a lot of Germans. So they're speaking German. There's a lot going on. We know the feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's just a lot going on. Like, I mean, you know, you got people buzzing in our room. You know, I wasn't used to that, you know. Maybe I'm used to more of like Wu-Tang and 22 dudes in the room with smoking blunts. But so I guess it would be the same for them. But that's what it was. It was a the equivalent of that, of, of being, you know, and sort of getting past your fears and challenging yourself. And um, it began, became a great experience. So I was there for about two and a half years. So... There's this thing that you've obviously experienced quite a bit to this point in your career, which is collectives working together then. Yeah. After Aftermath, you join Good Music. Yes. And you made reference earlier to this phenomenon of there being many people credited on one individual production. So I wonder if you can just share some insight as to why that is because you've obviously been in the situation where not enough people have been credited yeah. on a production. So is this just simply compensation for that? As in, you know, from an administrative sense, like, is this a karmic sort of thing? Like, um, or is this just how the world works now? Well, I like to think it's a little bit of both, but um, it's definitely a testament to Kanye West, meaning this kid was a very accomplished producer that, as you know, could do it all on himself. You know, we know that that's how the way he came up, like spending, you know, challenging himself, locking himself in a room and doing 10 beats a day by himself. So when I first came into the Kanye situation, this was a guy who was already at the top of his game and he had and he had his team. So his team was really Mike Dean, Jeff Basker, Anthony Killoffer and um, no ID. So everybody in their respective positions was also very accomplished you know jeff's one of the top producers in the game now mike dean's one of the top producers in the world no id still a big producer and one of the top executives in the world so everybody at their respective positions was already really good so i was kind of like well you know well you're you're pretty set over here like you know you're pretty good and he was like and he was like no it's it's constant it's constant elevate it's constant meaning the door is always open for new ideas, new talent, new, you know, and I, and I just really appreciated that and, and how he championed that. And, you know, that was just a necessity for him. And I fed off that because, you know, um, the latter part of the Dre situation had been challenging because he was not putting out music. And I think at that point I still had almost like a vampire needing blood. I still had that need to create music and put music out. I wasn't done, you know? And so for years, the last, I don't know, three, four years, Dre wasn't putting out any music, you know, a little bit of Eminem here and there. But even then, he had less and less involvement in that. So it was very stifling and confining. So uh, but just out of curiosity, I know we're not talking about Aftermath necessarily right now, but why, 
why no music released from Dr. Dre has become a running joke for decades now. You know. Two things. One is I think he was protective of his legacy. I think he, you know, I was surprised at how aware of his legacy he, he is. Because he doesn't really give you that impression. He doesn't really talk about that stuff and so on and so forth. But I do think, you know, he's always told me that even from the day we first met. I'm never going to put anything out if it's not special. Um, I don't know that I think Compton is special, but it is good. It's, I mean, it is a credit. Like, I don't feel like that's a knock to his career. You know, I don't feel like it's like, oh, you know, where somebody comes and they do one of those albums and it's like, oh, my God. So I, I definitely feel like it was a credible album. Could, do I think we could have made it better if I was still there? Yeah. Um, so he was very aware of his legacy. And I think, you know, because I'd asked him when I first started working with him about the Rockham thing and so on and so forth. And I said, wow, you know, I would I was waiting for you and Rockham to put. And he said, if it's not amazing, I'm not putting it out. And so and that's, I think, the way he sort of does his career mm-hmm. yeah okay and then not to derail your thought process but then you were talking about kanye and your role as far as um facilitating things when you yeah. you already seem to think he had a a team set but yeah i can literally remember um i had listening to the watch the throne record and um we me and kanye had been meeting um and this was literally just before the watch the throne tour and we had do, been doing a number of meetings i literally was I can remember driving in LA and listening to Otis and just like as much as I've known the sample, I've chopped the sample up before still listening to it and just like, wow, you know? So it was just fun. Like, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I I wasn't intimidated at all by the situation. I think at that point, you know, you're coming off the Dre thing, you definitely still feel like you're definitely a Jedi. You know what I mean? You definitely feel like you have the skill set, but, at the same time, you know, he's coming off Watch the Throne and Dark Twisted Fantasy. You know, to this day, Dark Twisted Fantasy to me is still one of the epitomes of just amazing production from a hip-hop, you know, perspective. Um, so um, the first record we worked on together was Mercy, you know, um, and I had Mercy in my pocket. I had met this young producer named Lifted in Phoenix maybe eight months before that, and he had this track, and I just said, let me hold that. And um, held it, and then we got together, and me and Kanye worked on it, and became Mercy. Mm-hmm. And if that's the first thing we do together, like I knew it was, we were good. Mm-hmm. So, so you didn't join as president of Good Music, yeah. but eventually, yeah, eventually we we discussed it, and it was just like let's let's just put our let's just start, and we'll just start, and we'll be creative, and we'll just go from there. We'll make records. We'll talk spend time together get to know you know i knew him but i didn't know him as far as like really like knowing knowing someone i knew don c really well i knew g robeson really well so i think in the first year or two it was really getting to know kanye Mm -hmm. so we knew each other but just you know hey it was you know mutual respect now um is it a conscious effort uh to have an album be the primary musical statement i mean come from an album era i guess so this is not necessarily the album era, you know, perhaps it's a playlist era, perhaps it's this individual yeah. track era, but, you know, certainly with Yeezus, but, you know, even the other good releases of recent vintage, yeah, you know, there seems to be an effort to try to make a statement. Maybe because, of, exactly, maybe because I am older and come from the album era and I've always loved classic albums and great albums, I still 
personally love giving people a body of work. Working on an album is just much more of a daunting task than just a song. Not to say that the same challenge remains when you're making just one record and you want to make a good record, but to make 12 of them or and then and make 12 of them that people are like, you know, that's just not go. I go back into that disposable. We are in the, the sort of short attention span era. I love to make music where maybe it holds your attention longer or maybe a year later you, you know, a lot of people have talked to me about Jesus and said it took him a year to really digest what was really going on there and appreciate what, what it was. And I love that. Like, I love that where you listen, you know, cause it's, I, you know what it is? I just can't get, I can't get it off in a single. I got it. You know what I mean? I, to, to really expand what, you know, what's going on in the, in my mind and then the collective mind. So when you put 10 of us or 20 of us together, we can't get that off in a song. That's just too much information coming out. So it has to be a body of work. And then many times it becomes a Travis Scott album, it becomes an Aesop Rocky album, it becomes all these other records too, and they've come through the filter and a Big Sean record, a Pusha T record, and it becomes seven albums out of one collective, you know, seed. So, Well, how do you navigate that when somebody says, hey, this was something, uh, I didn't like this, or, or, you know, when somebody does not um, subsume, you know, their preference for the team that stuff happens when you've got a number of busy individuals doing a number of different things in different cities and countries and moving around it does happen unfortunately you it is one of those things which is tricky because you don't ever want to let anything out of your control and then if you're not there for the final say something could happen you're like oh what happened and then the deadline is reached and it's already out it's gone and you're like fuck um I'm after I think literally after the Lauren album I've never really been sentimental about the records since then I've you know after that I think that was the last time I was sentimental about a record and once it's gone it's gone it's like it's a like a bird that you raise and you know you healed it and you bled it out and then it flies away and you know hopefully you know it survives but I'm still sort of sentimental about the process I mean that's the control freak I think every producer is a control freak like saying you're done is tough being like oh it's done you know because normally you're like oh i could change this i can do that what about if i you know you're always sort of you know you're going through i'm doing that now on like five records mm-hmm. like even when i live here tonight i'll be like oh, i got records i gotta finish mm-hmm. yeah so you just gotta let it go yeah. you know and if you don't you just be you're still stuck <laughs> hey this is todd burns again thanks for listening to couch wisdom before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.